Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 47th edition of For What It's Worth. I know I'm getting dangerously close to 50, and maybe at 50 I just quit. I don't know. That's what a lot of people do, right? They just go all in and like things like social or even email newsletters, and they're hardcore, and then they just disappear one day. And then they all come back and they go, well, you know, I just burned out. I just burned everything out. And the reason they burn out is because it was never them in the first place, right? They're trying to build something to be palatable for the masses. And me, I don't care about the masses. And I would do this if not a single person was listening because I am that strange. I am that odd. And uh, for some reason, and I just love audio. I love the sound. I don't necessarily love the sound of my own voice. I don't think I have a particularly good on-air voice, but I don't care, and I'm interested in a million topics, and I have nowhere else to put these topics and these thoughts except on here, because they're rattling around in my brain. Okay, who is this podcast for if you're new? I always begin these episodes with who is the podcast for, and in this case, it's for anyone who knows the following dialogue. If you know the following dialogue from the best movie of 1983, by far, John Badham directed, then this podcast is for you. It goes like this. Okay, Lightman, maybe you can tell us who first introduced the idea of reproduction without sex. Pause. Um, your wife? Ha ha ha, insert laugh track. Get out, Lightman, get out. Seconds later, Lightman enters principal's office. Mr. Liggett wants me to discuss my attitude problem with Mr. Kessler. I think Mr. Kessler's getting tired of discussing your attitude problem. I think so too. End scene. Now, if you know that dialogue... Welcome to the podcast. Come on in. This is for you. You're going to love it. Okay, our hero of the week is John Le Carre, the, the spy novel writer who died this week, um, which is a real bummer. And, and can you imagine being a person like that and living during the time he did? I think in some, in some ways, the time made the man. Uh, you could also throw Graham Greene into the same conversation in terms of the volume that they put out and the quality they put out. Um, Le Carre was wrote many, many successful books, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy being among among them, which they made into a film. They've made a lot of his movies into films, uh, and we lost him. And every time we lose a great author, it's painful. Uh, the great news about losing an author is that their work lives on. Yesterday, I, was, I watched about five minutes of an interview with the Farrelly brothers and Javier Bardem and Josh Brolin about making No Country for Old Men, which Roger Ebert called the perfect movie, right? I think that is a great movie. I think the script was amazing. I think the locations in West Texas were, were a great part. I think the casting was good. And uh, it started with a Cormac McCarthy book. And if you don't know Cormac McCarthy, you should read everything he's ever done immediately. You could start with the Border Trilogy, uh, Blood Meridian, which is in my top 10 books of all time, All the Pretty Horses, etc., The Crossing, um, No Country for Old Men, The Road. It goes on and on and on. He's a very unique writer. And so it's a bummer we lost, we lost uh, Mr. La Carre, but, um, you know. He's our hero of the week. Our scum of the week was, was, this is part three, our scum of the week was difficult because Stephen Miller decided to get up at a podium and open his mouth. And, and if you don't know Stephen Miller, he's Trump, Trump's chief, chief policy advisor, and he's a specific kind of crazy. Everyone in that administration is, is crazy, in my opinion, but Stephen Miller is, takes kind of a place by himself, but, but he's not my scum of the week. He got up and said some things at a podium, and if you've never seen him speak, it's worth watching. You have to look up some Stephen Miller. He gets thrown off of television shows all the time because he literally, you know, says things like, Trump has superhuman powers, and, you know, Trump eats light bulbs, and he's totally fine. He'll say anything, um, and he's also in, in, in char- behind a lot of the immigration policies of the Trump administration. And Stephen Miller is actually pretty shrewd. He started in Jeff Sessions' office and moved his way up. But I, apparently, he's also very paranoid. And I think that's one of the things that actually lessened his impact on the administration is that he kind of isolated himself. But he, he said some comments this week that were off the charts. But he's not my scum of the week. Because my scum of the week goes back to our default scum of the week, which is Facebook. Because, man, once again, um, this week alone with Facebook was staggering. Not to mention today they are in a nasty little spat with Apple. 
And uh, Apple is is doing some things that Facebook, one, is going to lose money over, which is why they're in a spat. And now they're claiming it's about security and all kinds of things. And for those of you out there who are defending Apple as this great defender of privacy, you are straight tripping. You are straight tripping. You cannot put Apple and your security in the same sentence. Yes, they may be better some of these other companies, but please, again, like let's be real. Let's let's go away from the last four years of complete and total delusion and look at the facts in front of us. So Facebook over the last four years kowtowed down to right-wing groups, and they promoted right-wing news. They actively worked to help get Trump elected. And they did everything in their power during the last four years to cater him because they thought he was going to win again and they thought he would leave them alone. Because if you don't know what happened to him the past week, there's this huge lawsuit about breaking up Facebook. Google's on the chopping block now, too. I think Facebook had 40 states that got together and said, this is a monopoly. We're going to break you up. Google had like 32 states that came out. I don't think they can actually break these folks up, either company, but they're going to at least make a veiled attempt. But... For Facebook to assist this craziness over the last four years, consistently lie about it, consistently promote misinformation, disinformation, to lie about a blackout on political ads when, in fact, they just basically open the floodgates again and again and again and again. If you are on this platform, you should go into the bathroom right now and look in the mirror and ask yourself how, as a human being, you can still be utilizing this platform. Because, again, another week another bloodbath. And oh, by the way, you Instagram users out there who um, think that that life is real, they're also accused of watching IG users through their camera phones. So this is not the first time this has happened. I had a TV once that was some weird off-brand, and they were they got busted for turning on the uh, microphones in the televisions and listening to conversations that were happening in living rooms all over the place. So Turning on cameras, you know, why do you think Mark, Mark Zuckerberg had his camera taped over in his office? Why do you think Edward Snowden taped over all the cameras? You know, they're turning these things on and on. They're turning on the, the, the recorders. Um, there is no scruples with this company, and I think we should know this by now, and it's shame on us for continuing to play along uh, with this facade because it's doing a lot of damage to our culture and our community. All right, question of the week. Is there a tracking device in the vaccine? This is a two-part question. And this first one is legitimate. Our question of the week, is there a tracking device in the vaccine? And the follow-up second part of the question is, how stupid are Americans? Okay, and that's another legitimate question because this is on the social media rumor mill and the QAnon rumor mills and all these places where the the people who are anti-vax have claimed that there is a tracking device in the vaccine. And once again, America, I just have to ask, how dumb are we? Uh, and that's, to me, a legitimate question. So if you have an answer to that, if, you do, if you've gotten the vaccine and you feel like you're being tracked, please let me know. And, um, and then send in your IQ, which I don't want to know my IQ because it's probably a lot, lot lower than I think. Uh, okay, let's just, before we get to the points, I need to give you an update on my weekly tech woes. For those of you who know me, Uh, you'll know this is old news. And for those of you who don't know me, just know that you do not want me anywhere near anything electronic that you own because my death ray will cripple and destroy everything that you have. This has happened since I was in middle school. It's nothing new. People think I'm exaggerating or they think I'm making this up. And then the people who know me go, no, it's legit. He's got a problem. So I talked to you last week about my, I'm on my second iPhone 12, which is a lot better than the first. These phones have definite problems. Um, they've, I guess they officially acknowledge the battery is a problem. The battery on my second phone is fine. That seems to be way better than the first. The first phone, first iPhone 12 I got had a horrible battery scenario and also had the, the uh, reception, the signal problem. And of course, Apple said, no idea what you're talking about. And then also would not replace my phone. So I canceled my contract with Apple. I went to T-Mobile. T-Mobile was very upfront and said, we're having a ton of problems. The manager at the store I went to, her phone was bad. We put the old phone and the new phone together and you could immediately see the signal problems on the old phone. So it's a legit thing. Um, And they said they're replacing phones right and left. But that's it. The phone's been working okay. It does not pick up a a cell reception like the iPhone 11. It is simply not as good 
Apple is not known for strong antennas in their phones. Samsung is known for much stronger antennas. I might actually, and I got to thank Kaufman for this, I might actually get a second phone with a 505 number for here in New Mexico and then slowly wean myself off of my old phone. But do you know how difficult that is when I've had that number for so long? I've had this number for 10,000 years. And the I would love to have both an Android phone and an Apple phone just to learn more about the Android program. But I've only had one Android phone in my life, and it was probably like six or seven years ago. I'd like to do that, but it's not a mandatory thing now. But the iPhone 12 antenna sucks. Just know that. If you live in the city, not a problem. If you live where I do, major problem. And for, for Apple apologists out there, don't try to deny that the 12 has issues because all you got to do is a little Google search and there are page after page after page after page from Forbes on down of people writing about the battery and the signal problem. So it's real. My computer, I love the new one. It's way better and faster than my old one. It is shutting itself down every night. And so when I start it up in the morning, I have to re-sign in and I get the error message that says this computer encountered a problem. Can we send the thing to Apple? And so I have to re-sign in. It has to reload all the programs. That happens every single night. Um, but the benefit of the new computer outweighs the hassle of whatever that is happening with it. Number one, uh, point of this week, Time Magazine did their person of the year, and they put Biden and Harris on the cover. Personally, I think that was dumb, and I think it's far too premature, and I think it's why another reason why nobody pays attention to Time Magazine anymore. Because that, to me, was a little bit blatant partisanship. They haven't done anything yet. And look, I'm happy that it's Biden and Harris and not Trump. I, I can't lie about that. That is, Trump to me was the worst human being I've ever seen in my life. I think he's a, we have four years of track record of total destruction. And I think he's going to break as much as he possibly can before he leaves office. I think you could le legitimately look at charging him with treason or sedition based on what he's done in the last two weeks and what he's about to do. Rumor has it the pardons are coming down today, and he's going to pardon everybody because everybody is dirty in that administration. We know it. We have the evidence. It's there. So, yes, I was happy about Biden and Harris, but are they going to be able to miraculously turn around our country and suddenly get 140 million people to agree with each other and solve all the problems and come up with a health care plan and fix education and combat the virus? No, they're not. It's going to be a tooth and nail battle for four years. And the Republicans are going to do everything in their power if they even decide to, you know, not bring troops in to try to keep Trump in office. They're going to do everything in their power to break everything that Biden and Harris are going to try to do. So the, what Time should have done is the American people should have been on the cover of Time magazine, not Biden and Harris. It's too early. You got to go in and prove it. And to think if you think that Joe Biden doesn't have baggage going back decades, and Joe Biden doesn't have his fingers in things he shouldn't have had his fingers in over the years, you are delusional. You do not become a po politician in America at that level without being compromised to some degree. There, it, there are no uh, fairy tales here, people. This is not a snowflake village. This is the legitimate reality of American politics, which is rooted in corruption going back to the time we were just the colonies. So let's not kid ourselves. Okay, point number two this week is completely out of right field. As you know, I read a lot. And as you know, I like to learn. I like to learn things that I don't know because primarily I'm a dumbass. And I, there's a lot that I don't know far more than what I do know in life. What do you know about silk? Not the, not the almond milk or the oat milk, but the actual fabric of, of silk. So I'm reading a book about insects and humans and their intersection going back to the beginnings of recorded time. And it's fascinating. Things like lacbugs, cochinelle, and silk. Silk is, and how it's produced, and silkworms, is one of the most interesting stories I've come across in God knows how long. There is a section of this book that I've read over and over again. And it's about how this silk is farmed. When you go from egg to larva to pupa to metamorphosis and they get it in the pupa stage in the caterpillar stage and they throw them into vats of water and a silkworm can put out 3,000 feet of silk four to six inches a minute think about that and silk has the tinsel strength of steel and the flexibility of rubber this little creature and if you think about all the ways that that's been tied to us through history it is staggering 
There's been a black market. There have been invasions. There have been people that have stolen silkworms from Asia and snuck them into other parts of the world. They've been stolen from Mexico. People were trading in this forever. And silk is one of the things that we have never been able to reproduce synthetically. We've tried with things like nylon. And for women who wear stockings, you have silk stockings and you have nylon. And I think if people were given their choice, they'd probably take silk. Parachutes in World War II. It goes on and on and on and on. So if you don't know about silk, silkworms, the harvesting and the stages, it's fascinating. I don't know the name of this book because it's on my Kindle. And that's one of the dark sides of the Kindle is they... This, is, this, this bugs me. When you get a book on a Kindle and you start the book, it skips past the cover and goes to the beginning of the book. And to see the cover, you have to go into the menu and say, bring me back to the cover. So all the book designers <clears throat> and people who are responsible for making a book what it is in physical form get lost in the digital form. And it's kind of frustrating. I would share the name of the book, but I don't have it. But it's pretty easy to find. Just look up Insects People. It's a new book. And uh, it's definitely worth reading. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, this is a, a quote. This is a, a little touch on Trump that I, I, I it made me think of, um, of tr- this is hard to explain. You know the movie Tombstone? When Val Kilmer's in bed, you think he's dying, and Wyatt Earp, played by what's-his-face, um, who I love, I'm blanking out on him, mustache, beard, Kurt Russell, so Kurt Russell's wider, and Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday. If you haven't seen Tombstone, quit what you're doing right now. Quit your job and go rent it and watch it. It's awesome. And anyway, they're sitting there, and, and Kurt Russell has already said to Johnny Ringo, who's the evil gunfighter, he's already said to him, I'm going to meet you in this canyon, and you and I are going are to duel. We're going to have a shooting duel to death. And now he's had some time to think about it, and he realizes that he can't beat Ringo. Like, Ringo's way too fast. And so he knows... The code of, of, you know, the, of the code of the gunfighter is you already committed verbally. There's no backing out. You're going to go and you know you're going to get gunned down and die. And so Kurt Russell is like talking to Val Kilmer, who is fast enough to beat Johnny Ringo, right? But we think he's sick and dying and he's never going to make it up there. And so now you're thinking, all right, Wyatt Earp's going to die. And he says, you know, he says, can I beat him? And, and Val goes, no, you can't beat him. And he goes, he goes, man, what drives a man like Ringo? And when he said, what drives a man like Ringo? In my head, I said, what drives a man like Trump? And the response from Val Kilmer from Doc Holliday was about Johnny Ringo, but it's the perfect description, I think, of, of Donnie Trump. And he says this, and I'm going to use an accent, which is completely accurate, by the way. He says, what drives a man like Ringo, Doc? And he says, Ringo, and, and uh, Val Kilmer says, he got a great big hole through the center of his body. And no matter how much death and how much killing, he can't feel it. And then Kurt Russell says, what's he so angry about? And Val goes, being born. And I'm like, that's it. That's Trump. That's the perfect description of Trump. He's Trump. He's got a great big hole through the center of him. And no matter how much damage he can create, it's never going to fill it. And he's just pissed about being born. And I'm like, man, every good life lesson can be tied back to the movie Tombstone. So again, quit your job and go watch it right now. So point number four is about money and margins and metrics and, and, and maximum profitability. And this is something that has happened. It's always been present in America. And I'm not going to throw the rest of the world under the bus. I'm just going to speak about America. Uh, it's always been present in our culture, right? The, the mighty dollar, maximizing the profit, you know, trying to get rich, etc. It's capitalism. But what's happened over the last 20 years is kind of remarkable in the sense that we had things happen like corporations were, were, there was a law passed where corporations are now viewed as human beings. And so a corporation has the same rights as a human being. Someone literally wrote that law suggested it, and it was passed into law, which tells you the level of corruption in our government just right there with that one piece of legislation. The other thing you will hear all the time is shareholders. You know, we've got to take into account the shareholders. The shareholders are the matter. The public is no longer a matter of concern for government or corporation. It's about shareholders. And your shareholders in the government are senators, congresspeople, 
etc. These are the people who are maximizing profits and advantages for the elite. And I think what we've done is we've, we've, we've profited our soul out of our entire culture. And I think that's one of the major reasons why there's so much unrest and unhappiness in America right now and division is that so many people feel they are not being heard and they're being left behind. And I think in this hunt, and there's nothing wrong with working hard and making a profit. I'm not attacking wealthy people because a lot of wealthy people were just smart and driven and focused and worked their asses off and made great decisions and didn't take that vacation and didn't feel entitled and didn't think they were going to inherit a bunch of money. They went out and they made it. And I know some of these people very well. I know them firsthand. I know several billionaires in my life, and both of them are people, I don't know if they're still billionaires, but they were at one point. They are the salt of the earth, nicest people in the world who came from nothing and went out and just busted ass and made their money. And I, there is not one part of my body that says, oh, you did that. I didn't because I chose a lazy route, and, but I'm gonna, I want to penalize you for doing that And so because you did that. You were successful. I'm going to penalize you. We're going to you know, tax you to death because of that because now you have to pay for everyone because of you know, my bad decision or whatever. I don't think we can do that. I think it's a terrible thing. I do think that increase on taxes on the wealthy is, is something we have to do. And corporations, for sure, Apple. I mean, look at Apple banking, what is it, $30 billion offshore in Ireland and acting like that's not a problem and then claiming that they're paying taxes. And it's not just Apple. It's all of the major corporations because that has become the number one driving factor of American culture is take care of the shareholders. Um, and it's going to kill us. It's going to destroy us. And so we just, I don't know what it is. Maybe we have to reestablish what a baseline of success looks like. Does success look like a 10,000 square foot house and a Ferrari in the driveway? Or is success um, an electric, you know, a, an inexpensive electric car and a thousand square foot house in the suburbs? Or is it a 500 square foot apartment downtown in high density living and no car? You know, we have to reinvent what the American dream is. And the idea of teaching our kids go out and get, 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 get before somebody else gets it is where we are now. And again, you're not going to take away capitalism and you're not going to take away aggressive business, but we just have to remodel what success potentially is because it ain't working right now. Okay, point number five is about writing. I started, the first thing I ever wrote uh, in my life was a, I mean, outside of little short stories and stuff as a kid, and I've written in a journal my whole life, but I wrote news stories. And I went to journalism school, and I had something called an AP style book. And if, at least where I went to school, if you wrote for a news article or you wrote a caption and you made a mistake that would, could be tied to the AP style book, Associated Press style book, you automatically flunked the assignment. So and a, news writing is very structured and very formulaic. It's why a lot of you don't really think of like newspaper reporters necessarily as being the world's greatest writers. Some of them are, but they're being contained by the industry itself. You have to write for a seventh grade level, reading level in America. So your copy is very, very, very structured on news articles. Feature articles are totally different. And columnists write columns and they have more freedoms than they do like a, a beat reporter writing for newspapers. And writing for the web is very similar. And the first post I ever wrote on my blog, which was called Smog Ranch at the time, now called Shifter, was something I wrote in my journal in the middle of the night that got picked up and syndicated by a newspaper outlet. And it ran in like 300 outlets around the country. And, it, and they had asked me at the time, they said, have you ever written anything else like this before? And I said, I have, you know, 100 volumes in my garage, in my journal that I've written stuff like this before. But when you write for the web, it's very much the same. And here's the danger of this. Newspapers are dying, right? They have been for 20 years. And when you write for the web, it virtually assures that you will suck every amount of, of reality, soul, interest, and life out of that piece because you're writing for these spiders and the keywords and the searches. And it's very tricky to balance writing for the web and not losing your mind and your soul. And it's hard. And I have to do it all the time. And if, again, I guess you could take today's podcast and see all the varying themes that I'm talking about 
and how they're connected. Uh, finance, you know, marginal, marginalizing ourselves out of existence, writing for the web, which is dumbing down for technology, et cetera. These are all connected. And it just is kind of, to me, like, it's hard because you look around and you go, how far down this road do I want to go? Like here I've written something and I think people would like this because it's first person and it's from real world experience, but it doesn't work for the web. So now I'm going to dissect it and I'm going to break it out into categories. And then I'm going to break those categories out into keywords. And then I'm going to break those keywords out into suggested content. And then I'm going to break that content out and I'm going to repeat things every 30 words. And I'm going to have this, 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 and this. And all of a sudden you get done with it and you're like, wow, this is perfect for the web. And it's soulless. So it's a hard thing, a battle. And for those of you out there writing for the web, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, point number six. I know a lot of people who are attempting to downsize, right? This is, um, and this became popular a couple of years ago with, that, with the book that came out about minimalization and minimizing your life. And I forget what it was called, but it was wildly successful. I didn't read it. Um, I'm trying to downsize for a variety of reasons and have pretty successfully downsized over the years. There are still some giant gaping holes in my plan, like my photo book connection, collection, which I'm trying to donate, but my wife is fighting me tooth and nail. I have gotten rid of virtually all of my clothing outside of a bag, a duffel bag filled with Beyond clothing, clothing which I'm doing a little test with by wearing it pretty much every day for an entire year to see how it holds up and if it's durable and if I like it and what works and what doesn't and all that kind of stuff. And I got rid of a lot of other stuff. And so when we moved to New Mexico from California, we didn't have a lot of stuff to begin with, but we got rid of a ton. And my wife is more of a collector and I am more of a minimalist. And that's always been the case. But even she now is like jettisoning things. In fact, I, right before I started this podcast, I went in her office and she goes, Hey, I just sold the such and such. And I was like, what? She goes, yeah, I just put it online and somebody just offered, offered to buy it. And I was like, great. So we are, we are downsizing. And one of the things that's always amazing is at the end of the year, you go to your closet and suddenly there's all, this, all these clothes that you look at and you're like, how did I get that? Where did that come from? And why did I buy that? And then you, you have a huge bag that you give to Goodwill or you donate one way or another and you go, man, how did that happen? And then the next year comes along and you, you do it again. Now, I have broken that cycle. And again, I told you, my entire life, my clothing life exists in a duffel bag that goes from the house to the van and back. I don't need anything else. But it reminded me of something funny, which doesn't happen anymore. And it's probably because I have a modern lifestyle, which means I'm in front of a computer all day, which is when I was younger, I used to wear out all of my clothing. I mean, everything I wore, wore out. My pants, my shirt, my underwear, my socks, my shoes, the hats I was wearing. And this goes back to the time when I, I was living in Wyoming as a kid. And when I was really small, there was a kind of pant that you could buy called tough skins. And for those of you my age, I'm sure you're laughing right now because you probably had them too. Because I would wear out my pants all the time. I always had some sort of jean or corduroy, you know, whatever, whatever pant some little boy had in the 70s and 80s. But I was outside all day, every day. And so my pants would wear out. My boots would wear out. My socks would always have holes in them. My underwear would wear out. And the shirts I were wearing were constantly covered in like mud or grease, blood. They would get torn, ripped. We would use them, you know, to like plug holes in a homemade boat that we were making. You know, you wore them out. Even my work gloves. I remember every summer I would have a pair of work gloves that were new and they would always be worn out by the end of the summer. They would have holes in them. And these are work gloves. And tough skins, by the way, are akin to wearing sandpaper, right? They were basically indestructible pants. They, were, they felt like sandpaper. They were horrendous. They were like a loofah. It was a free loofah from the waist down wearing tough skins. I would wear out tough skins, and my mom would put patches on my tough skins. At the time, we did not think about this at all. Now, the one thing that I think about, think back is, we were at 8,000 feet, and my mom would do the laundry, and she would put it on a clothesline in the backyard in the sun because it would dry. It's like here in New Mexico. It dries in like 15 minutes. But it would also bake the living hell out of all your clothing. And I remember when Levi's became popular and when I was in high school, we would wash them in Wyoming and leave them on the clothesline and they would all fade. And I would go back to Texas and people would be like, wow, where'd you get those jeans? How are they faded like that? And I was just like, son, you know, from the mountains. But how cool is it to wear out your clothing? 
And that is kind of my mindset with this beyond, this bag of beyond stuff. So I have a bunch of jackets, some, uh, one kind of pant, uh, and a bunch of like pullovers cause it's freezing here. And I've been wearing their clothing every day for months. And I don't wash it every day because washing it is really hard on the clothing. But my goal is to wear out the existing clothing that I have. You know, the, all of this stuff will eventually wear out. So far, I'm happy to report that it's been, uh, it's, it's holding up really well. And this brings me to a, a subcategory of this point, which is someone I know very close, someone I see every day, bought a jacket at Costco. And it was $19. And it looks great. And like you saw it when, you, when, when this person got it. And I was like, wow, that is dirt cheap. And guess what? The jacket doesn't really work anymore. The zipper, the other night we were, we were sitting around and I like reached for this person. And there was, I heard this weird noise. And I was like, God, that sounds like the end of the world. And sure enough, it was the zipper blowing out on a $19 jacket. That's made in a place that probably does not want to make $19 jackets, if you know what I mean reading between those lines. And I, I said to her, see, I blew it. I just said who it was. I said to her, that's kind of what you get. If you buy something that sucks, you buy 10 of them as opposed to buying one. Now, I felt this way about vehicles. I feel this way about cameras. I feel this way about my clothing. I want to buy something that's built well enough to last so that I can get to wear it or use it long enough to wear it out. I don't think your car is your car until you're on your third set of tires. When you hit three sets of tires, I think that's when you can go, you know what? I have a bond with this, this piece of machinery. And I feel the same about clothing. I feel the same about my bicycle, although God knows I should add this point in. I'm really having a hard time not buying a certain bike. All right, I'm going to add that point in at the end. But cool, tell me your stories about wearing out your clothing as a kid. And do your, did your mom like smack you on the back of the head? when you did it every single time, even though she knew it was coming. Maybe that was an outlet at the back of your head. All right. Point number seven is I'm learning about filmmaking. And if you've seen my YouTube channel, you know I have a long way to go. Um, some of the, the, the series that I'm really enjoying making are the van life, even though I don't really talk about the van, and Everyday Expedition, because I do like getting out in the world, and I like showing everyday people, things that are doable for everyday people. I'm not a mountaineer. I'm not an expedition leader. I'm not some crazy athlete. I'm just a dude that goes out with limited time and tries to have fun. And I'm learning. And one thing, one lesson I learned last week was I did a film called Everyday Expedition, episode three, and it was about being down in the Bosque photographing sandhill cranes and my brother sending me a text about spreading my father's ashes at my mom's house. And I made this film and somehow I, I didn't make it good enough for people to understand that my father didn't die last week. He died in 2005. And so all these people wrote and said, man, sorry for, sorry for your loss. Sorry for your loss. And I was like, Ooh, lesson learned. Um, he didn't die this week. He died, you know, whatever, 15 years ago. And, uh, my bad. So that was a lesson I learned from filmmaking this week that I wanted to share so that you don't make the same mistake. Um, everything I do filmmaking is rushed. You'll love this. If you saw that Everyday Expedition film, that entire film, start to finish, took an hour and a half between conference calls. So my day is typically averages from like two, two hours to five hours of conference calls uh, daily. And I had a gap, and I was at conference call breaking point. I was like, I'm going to lose it if I have to do another conference call. And so I was like, I need something fun. I'd, I'd gone to the Bosque the previous weekend. And I just blocked everything else out and for an hour and a half, and I made that film. So everything is rushed. So I'm sort of giving, letting myself off the hook, but I did make that mistake. And if I can help you not make it, then so be it. Okay, point number eight is about documentary projects. The best thing in the world for me used to be going out and doing a documentary project with two Leicas and two lenses, 35 and a 50, in a bag of film. And that was my favorite thing in the world to do, and it still is one of my favorite things in the world to do. Uh, and I think to myself, post-COVID, what would be really fun to do as a photographer? And it's, it's that. It's to do this same thing again, which I haven't done in a long, long time, years. And so I am freaking out thinking about the possibility of doing this again, but where would I go and what would I do? Now, I'm supposed to go to Germany, Spain, and Albania in 2021 to teach, 
teaching doesn't mean making documentary pictures. It means teaching. Um, so the, those three trips I doubt are going to happen. But if they do, I'll at least get, get out for a bit and do that. So I don't know if flying internationally again to do a documentary project makes sense. And so my, my two ideas for New Mexico are birding. I think that there's a potentially a really good story in birding that I could do here, and I don't need model releases, and I don't need access. And the other is the border. I love the border. I started, I first, actually I found, and I'm going to do a YouTube film about this, I found the first images I made the first time I crossed the border with a camera, which was for, I want to say, Photography 325 class at UT, which I think is the first black and white class, or Photography 315 or Photography 305, it was something like that. And I drove to Nuevo Laredo and I crossed over and I made these pictures and they're not, not, not good, but I have them and they're printed and they're mounted and they still look like the day that I made them in the darkroom, which is hilarious, but I'm going to show those. The border is fascinating. Yes, there's a dark side to the border, but yes, there is a wonderful side to the border. And if you are looking for a better group of people on the planet, you are going to be hard pressed to find a better group of people than the Mexican people. And if you look at what's happened over the last 20 years in Mexico with the drug war in particular, what they have had to endure and what they are still pulling off and doing on a daily basis is incredible. And so I really think I might revisit the border in some way that I haven't done in the past. And I've photographed in Nuevo Laredo and, and Nogales and Tijuana and Tecate and a bunch of places along the border. I love it. It never gets old. Um, I just need to come up with a story idea. So that's maybe tw end of 2021 for me. Okay. Point number nine is important for anyone on this call who's a photographer or thinking about being a photographer or navigating the photography space. And this is something that's always bothered me. And because of all the tools at our disposal today, it is less of a problem today than ever if you decide to go this path. And that is about traditional bottlenecks in the, in the photography industry, which are magazines, magazine editors, galleries, publishers, curators, etc. These are traditional classic bottlenecks of information. For example, when I started, it was late 90s, I was living in California, I had no cell phone, no computer, and everyone that was in control of my career as a photographer, there were two photo editors in LA and there were about six in New York that I would call on the landline about doing assignments and getting work. And they controlled everything. They controlled the assignments, they controlled the budgets, they controlled the contracts, they controlled everything. And so I was felt kind of helpless, like, wait a minute, you know, I don't even know these people. I've met, of all those seven people, or eight people, I had met one in person, who was a, who's a gem, LA-based photo editor um, for a big news magazine, and she was awesome. But I'd never met any of the other ones. And so I just felt kind of like hopeless. And publishers felt the same way, and agency directors felt the same way, where it was them and us. And I never liked that. And so the second that something like print on demand came along and I could make my own magazine, I said, I'm making my own magazine. I'm not waiting around for these people to do it. Yeah, nobody's going to see it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because if someone ever says to me like, well, how do you think this story should look? I just pull out this magazine and go like this. I already did it. Like, here it is. Take this, run it. The copy's edited. The images are ready, blah, blah, blah. And so there are a lot of photographers who are not willing to go down that path, they are still 100% beholden to the traditional model. Even though the model has been broken for 30 years, the, the, the payments have been broken for 30 years, everything about the system is broken, and yet they're standing in line waiting to be told what to do. And that is baffling to me. because, And it happen, I see it primarily today because I'm not involved day-to-day -day photography. I see it in publishing, and the number one publishing deal I see and hear about is photographer paying to have their book done. Now, that for some weird reason is not considered self-publishing. If I go out and pay for a book and do it myself and print blurb, that's considered self-publishing and everybody looks down on it. Like professional photographers go, oh, that's not a real book, it's a blurb book. I'm going to get a real book, I'm going to go to a real publisher. 
And then they blow 30 or 40 or 50 grand paying the publisher to do a book that they may like, they may not like, they may get marketing, they may not, they may get distribution, they may not. And it's a terrible scenario that I see and hear about all the time. It's the number one common deal. Let me repeat this because a lot of people don't believe this. The number one publishing scenario I see and hear is a photographer paying anywhere from twenty dollars to $50,000 up front to have a book done with a publisher. In some cases, this is acknowledged publicly, and in other cases, it's not. In fact, it is purposely hidden because the publisher does not want to be known as what's called a pay-for-play publisher. But to me, if you are paying a publisher to do your book, you are self-publishing. You need to check the ego and check the reality and say, <clears throat> I'm paying for it up front. Now, let's say that you spend 50 grand and you printed 500 books and you, and you couldn't get rid of them and you couldn't sell them, but one of them ended up in the right place. Let's say the Museum of Modern Art collection, the collector for, let's say, new artists found your book and said, oh my God, I love this. I'm going to invite this person and I want to acquire one of their pieces for the collection. Your whole thing could have been could have, could work. It could pay off. Yes, you could be out fifty grand, but you just got placement in the Museum of Modern Art, which might lead to a show in their new collection show of twenty twenty one. And 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 a collector comes in and goes, "I've never heard of this person. I absolutely love this. What else do they have?" And boom, that fifty grand is coming back to you, and more so. So it's possible, but the reluctance of people to go alone is crazy to me. I just don't understand it. And some of these people are so talented. And so creative, and they are being crushed by galleries and curators and publishers. I mean crushed, literally swept under the rug because they don't know how to play the game or they were not willing to play the game. This is one of the reasons why I committed in 2021 to spend a lot more time with AG, with AG23, because this is a project that doesn't have bottlenecks. This is Rick and I. Yes, I have a brand behind me. Yes, he has a brand behind me. We've never once spoken of those brands being tied to AG. That is not the point. In fact, Rick and I had a long conversation yesterday, and this is hilarious. I love talking to him. He's very intelligent, and he can wear the right brain or left brain hat. So he knows more about business and running a company than I ever will. I don't know how he does that. He's managing multiple brands. But he's also creative, and he also does photography, and he also does a ton of other creative stuff. And so talking to him is funny, and he, go, he said something yesterday that we were both laughing about. He goes, yeah, you know, the second we – he goes, when AG23, we, we, we started talking about it. He goes, you said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because it's going to be too hard and too expensive. And, and he goes, yeah, we just both looked at each other and said we're never going to make any money. Like this is never going to make money. It's going to be a ton of work. It's way harder than we think it is. And then, you know, enough time goes by that we both look at each other and go, you know what, we should probably do that anyway. And we did. And so issue two is being designed right now. It's going to be printed. Issue three has got seven or eight people lined up. 2021 should be very interesting. I have a phone call next Monday that could really impact the future of this project. And I hope, 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 hope that it's impacted in a positive way. If it's not, I'm still going to do it anyway, but this could be really wonderful, um, a nice sort of step up in the collaboration between brands that are able to pull this off, but I will keep you informed on that. Okay, two, two things. I want to talk quickly about a bicycle, then I'm going to talk about the treasury hack, and then I'm going to tell you a story about my father blowing himself up, so make sure that you stick around. There is a bicycle that has been released. It hasn't. It's not quite out yet, but you can make a pre-order, and... So a friend of mine wrote me last week from California, and I've never been cycling with him ever. But he said, hey, I really want a bike. I really want to get into cycling. And he's got two little boys who are two of the cutest kids I've ever seen in my life. And he's like, hey, I want to buy a bike. And I said, what's your budget? And he said, two grand or less. I said, okay, you can get a great bike for that. But there's this other bike that's three grand that you should really think about, which is not quite out yet. But it, it was announced and then tweaked and refined, and now it's going to be, you can put your pre-order in now. If you order it now, it's three grand. If you don't and you wait and get it down the line, it's going to be 3500 bucks, which might seem like an insane amount of money, but if you know anything about modern bikes, it's actually not. And there are aspects of this bike that are completely unique, and I want it really bad. I swear to God, I'm not going to buy it today. But that's all I can promise you. The bike is made by a company called Priority. Priority bikes. I do not know where they're based. I think it's in Boston, but I could be wrong. Don't hold me to that. 
And priority's odd. They're, 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 there's no, uh, they're, the bikes are not sold in store. It's direct to consumer. And they're, they're weird. They're aluminum frames, which is great. And some people love aluminum, some hate it. What I like about aluminum is that it's stiff, stiffer than steel, and it's lighter than steel. It's harder to repair, but I have not wrecked a bike frame in I don't know how long. I'm riding a titanium frame. If you wreck a titanium frame in the field, good luck fixing it, right? Steel, the benefit of steel is you can fix it anywhere. Any, any street welder can typically fix a steel frame. Aluminum and titanium and things like that are a bit trickier. Carbon, forget about it. So Priority makes a bike called a 600X, and it's their Expedition Touring model, right? It's not quite out yet. And this bike was designed with a YouTuber. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. There's a YouTuber up in Boulder named Ryan Van Duzer. And um, he seems like a down-to-earth, totally normal guy that absolutely just loves any loves cycling more than anything in life. He's a really good athlete, too. He's been doing this a long time. And so Van Duzer took the, the pre-production model of the 600X and rode the Tour Divide route, which goes from Banff, Canada to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. It's about 2,700 miles. There's 200,000 feet of climbing. It's like, it's like riding your bike up Mount Everest like 10 times. And... Um, he didn't, wasn't able to complete it because when he got to New Mexico, there was a COVID restriction in place and he had to bail early and he couldn't cross the Canadian border. So he didn't do quite the whole route, but who gives a crap? This route is simply one of the coolest things left in America. And I'm sure in the next decade, it will be impossible to ride this trail because some private landowner is going to buy a piece of it and close it. And it's not going to be possible anymore. I want to do it so bad. And I know with 100% certain certainty, I am physically incapable of doing so. But I want to try it because it is one of the last remaining stretches of wilderness like this left in America, and it's going away fast. So anyway, the 600X is a, is a flat bar mountain bike geometry, so sloping top tube. It'll run up to a 2.8-inch tire, which is something I never thought I'd be interested in, but I am now because where I live is so sandy. So running an almost three-inch tire is fantastic, and I don't think I would ever need anything wider than that. It also has a front suspension fork, which is one thing my salsa does not have, which drives me nuts because I ride on so much washboard, and it just beats the living hell out of your hands, shoulders, neck, etc. I've always wanted to put a suspension fork on there. This, this bike, the Priority comes with a very interesting front fork, which is from a, a small company in California, I believe. And it's a suspension fork where the, the fork is actually inverted. The, the part that moves the smaller diameter section of the fork is not on top, it's on the bottom. And it's a very interesting fork to read about. That's interesting. Even if they had a rock shock or something else on there, I'd be totally fine with that. But that's a pretty interesting inclusion. And these tweaks were made after Van Duzer did the Tour Divide. And then he came back and said, you know what? The dyno hub didn't work. Take it out. Um, the suspension fork is great, but I want something more. Um, the tires weren't durable enough. You know, we need to tweak the mounts, blah, blah, blah. So they also tweaked all the mounts for mounting frame bags, bottle, bottle cages, etc. It's got mounts all over it. Top tube, down tubes, everywhere, which is nice. But the key to the bike is two components. It's an aluminum frame. Again, you can be hot and cold on aluminum, whatever. I don't mind aluminum. I've ridden aluminum. I'm staring at an aluminum bike on my trainer right now. Um, I don't mind it at all. This bike has a pinion gearbox, which is an internal gearbox designed by a former Porsche engineer in Stuttgart. And these things are insane. They have a 600% gear ratio change. They're sealed. There is no maintenance other than changing the oil every 6,000 miles. They are incredible. I am so intrigued by this gearbox because the one thing I hate about my salsa, and I've hated it from day one, is the shit components on my bike. Every single time I ride, I have to, I have to carry a hex wrench and a toolkit, and I have to make adjustments on my drivetrain. I'm not joking. Every time. It is maddening. I spent a thousand bucks having a new drivetrain put on, and it's the same way because the price of componentry, the lack of ability to get componentry, even from a friend at Shimano, he couldn't get the components I needed. So I couldn't switch over to a really high end set like GRX. I was stuck with sort of the low end components that came on the salsa. And by the way, the salsa was a $3,000 bike that came with a low end set of SRAM that I've never liked. It's been a disaster. The second part of the Priority 600 that's worth, and in my mind, getting this bike for three grand is insane. That is a killer price for this bike. 
The other part is it has a Gates carbon belt drive, so there's no chain. So you combine the Gates, Gates belt with the pinion gearbox, and you have an incredibly slick drivetrain that has virtually no maintenance whatsoever. There's no derailleur, there's no chain, there's no lube, there's no nothing. May, time to time, you have to squirt off the, the Gates drive. The Gates is a carbon belt that replaces your chain. And if you haven't seen this, look it up because it's fantastic. In the combination of the pinion gearbox and the Gates carbon belt alone, which are not things that you can add to existing bikes without doing some, you can't add a pinion gearbox. It's built into the frame. So I can't add that. I could do a roll off hub in the back of my salsa, but I'd have to put a splitter in the frame. And when you consider the cost of the roll off, the labor, the splitter, the gates and everything, you're talking three grand to get it done, which means, which is like buying my bike a second time over, which I'm not going to do. So now I'm on the fence. Do I sell the salsa? Do I keep it for friends when they come out to ride and buy, buy the gates, whatever? The one thing about priority, which I, I would love for them to do, is my salsa has drop bars on it. And they're called wood chippers, which is a salsa bar that are like drop bars on a road bike, but they're wider and they're flared at the bottom and they're thick. And I really love these bars. And I spend a lot of time on the road in between gravel and trail sections. So the drop bars remind me of my road bike and I've been riding drop bars for 25 years. And so I'm used to it. I would love if they made a version of the priority that had drop bars. And because one of the things that's tricky about the pinion shift is the shifter mechanism. And on a flat bar bike, it's no big deal. But if I took a priority 600 X to a local bike shop and said, can you swap out the flat bars for for drops and then switch the shifter into close to where the stem is, I'd, I'd give it a 50-50 chance that that's going to be done right, right? They're going to look at this bike and like go, this is weird. I've never seen this. I don't know anything about it. I don't know about pinion. I don't know about gates drive. Bike shops are very sensitive. And I could see them going, uh, you know, why'd you buy that bike? You should have bought the one that we have. And then maybe they do it right and maybe they don't because it's atypical. So I would love that. And I know I've seen uh, one person with a priority, not the 600X, but another model that had drops, drop bars. So I know it's possible to do that, but it would be nice from the factory. Now, the, the dilemma too is flat bars are pretty amazing when you're off-road. And if you're spending the, primarily your time on trail and gravel, then I would leave the flat bars. But if you're like me and you spend probably 50-50, it's road and gravel, then I would say, man, the drops would be really nice. But lockout front suspension, pinion drive, Gates carbon belt, aluminum with mounts everywhere for three grand. That is damn good. Like, I really want this bike bad, but I'm not going to buy it today. I promise. What, was it, what else was I going to say about this? All right, two, two more things. Um, the treasury hack. We need to talk about the hack that just happened. This is point number 10 or 11. The treasury hack that just happened wasn't just the treasury. It was commerce, and it was a bunch of other departments. And this is a monumental hack. This thing, if you read about it in depth, and I've only just begun, it hit multiple divisions. They've been inside of these divisions and departments for, for months and months and months. Now, the, the, the likely suspects are the Russians. Um, they know that it was a state, a nation state, that pulled off this hack. But every single day, there's another layer that comes out. And one of the things, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to blow my own horn here. One, I'm going to blow my own horn in a major way. So sit down and brace yourself for how awesome I am. But when Donald Trump was elected, there was obviously, you know, he was trying to get a, a, a hotel built in Moscow during the time he was elected, which they lied about, of course. And so we, we knew he had these weird ties. He'd done business over there. There was an idea that the Russians had compromise on Trump, which is compromise, and it's an old Cold War espionage tactic of getting something on someone and then using it for leverage. Like, we do it, Russians do it, everyone does it in their espionage campaigns. But in my head, I was like, Trump doesn't know how to use a computer. He doesn't. He doesn't know how to use a computer. He doesn't type. He doesn't do email. He knows nothing about cyber at all. Zero. And in my head, in 2016, I said, man... If I was a hacker in North Korea, China, or Russia, this would be open gate, like wide open, because the guy at the top, because, and this is my philosophy and my theory, and it could be completely flawed, but it's mine, and I'm awesome, remember, is that he doesn't believe in anything he can't see. And so he doesn't use a computer, he doesn't type, he doesn't know anything about computer, email, or anything. And so for him, 
it's probably just an inconvenience to even think about this stuff. Plus, he has catered to Putin the entire time he's been in office for un unknown reasons to a level that like everyone in the in the defense and um, counterintelligence and everyone's like, whoa, like what is he doing catering to this guy who we know is a complete sociopath? So I kind of expected it. But all I'm saying with this last point is research what happened with this hack and how extensive and how deep and how damaging this is. They have the goods on a lot. Our Department of Energy, our Department of Commerce, our Department of Treasury, all hacked like deep. So for you cyber folks out there, reach out, send me an email. Let me know. Like, Tell me how bad this is from someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Okay, last point is a story which is definitely going to be worth waiting around for because it involves explosives, blood, emergency room, and just general good, clean family fun. So my parents, uh, this was when we were living in Indiana. I was a little boy. So we left Indiana when I was in fourth grade. We lived out in the country. And my brother and sister and I, we didn't know anything outside of rural Indiana, right? We were going to school with kids that had extra fingers and toes. Let me just let, let that sink in for a second. They had extra fingers and toes. That's not normal. I went home from school one day and said to my mom, I got ripped off. I only have five fingers. And my mom said, I think in the long run, you're going to be happy about that. So anyway, that tells you the kind of community. I actually really like the community that we grew up in. It was pretty cool. Rural Indiana was pretty cool, but it was the only thing we knew. We had not yet moved to Texas. We, I hadn't traveled around as a kid. I didn't know. I, I thought everywhere was like Indiana, you know, muggy, hot, and buggy in the summer, frozen and gray in the winter for six months a year. My parents were, were hunters. They would hunt deer and antelope um, and then bird hunt. And so we lived in the country, and my parents, my father was very, very much into gunsmithing. So he did his own loading and reloading, and uh, he also, he and my mother— hand-built, let me repeat that, hand-built, everything, hand-built black powder muzzle-loading rifles, okay? And if you don't know what a muzzle-loader is, it's the old, 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 think like, you know, Civil War musket with a ball, you know, uh, you literally take a black powder load, put it into the barrel with a, a, a little section of patch and a ball, and you sh that's how you shoot. And they hand-built these black powder muzzle-loaders, and they are absolutely gorgeous works of art. They are. They are <clears throat> literally works of art. And so <clears throat> my father, being the hyper-intelligent individual he was, the same person thrown out of three major universities after attending military school, which should tell you about his uh, academic prowess and his, uh, his ability to deal well with, with authority. So one day, summer, Indiana, in the country, the three of us kids are probably driving him insane He's at wit's end. What can I do to entertain everyone um, that will be safe and fun for the whole family? So my father, in his infinite wisdom, decides, after probably watching Wile E. Coyote uh, on a Saturday morning, says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the excess black powder that I have, which is old and probably going bad, and I will lay it out in a line on the ground, and I will light one end, and it will burn just like it does in Saturday morning cartoons. What could possibly go wrong? And so my brother and sister and I are like, that's, you know what that is? That's a great idea. That's a really, really great idea. So my father, and man, I remember every detail of this. My father takes a bag. It's a, it's a I don't know what you call it. It's a powder bag. So it's got a plastic nozzle on one end, and it's made out of leather. It could have been a deer scrotum, for all I know, because my bag that I kept my allowance in every week, which was a quarter, by the way, um, I kept a deer scrotum at the head of my bed that, that held my, uh, my allowance. And so my father takes out this powder bag, and he, he, he makes a line of powder in the yard, okay? That's fine. Everything's fine up until this point. The problem he does is because of the influence of Wile E. Coyote, at the end of the line, at the end where he's imagining he's going to light this, he makes a pile of powder. Great, great move. Makes a pile, lines there. The family is gathered around. Um, everything about this is wrong, but it's true. So my mom is there, my father's there, brother, sister, me. 
gathering around, the, po- the powder is laid out, and my father decides, okay, now's the time. I'm going to spark this baby up. And he sparks it up. And in the process of sparking it up, he leans over the top of this pile of black powder. And black powder burns, yes, but what it does first is it explodes. So this pile of black, fa- black powder blows up in my father's face. And I mean, it is a cloud like a magician show. It is like a white cloud of exploding black powder. And my father goes flying. He flies over backwards, right? And by now, two seconds into this little experiment, everyone has realized, even me in fourth grade, has realized how awry this has gone. And there is this enormous concussion. And then, to his credit, the rest of the line burned very nicely. It was very cool for about five seconds. But by now, he has come down, landed on his back, boom, and there his face has definitely take a black, it's taken a black powder blast. And I remember I didn't hear the blast because it happened so fast. And when he hit the ground, um, I heard my mom screaming. That was the first sound that I remember hearing. And my father's lip was like not completely off. But like a part of the lip, like a layer, the top layer that's actually quite important was kind of hanging off the side of his face. And I was like, hmm. And fourth grade, you're like, hmm, let me use my deductive powers here to figure out on a scale of one to 10 just how wrong this actually is. And it was pretty much a 10 on the scale of, of one to wrong. And so my father's face gets kind of like blown off with the black powder. And now the party is over. And so it's the five of us on the way to the ER with my father getting his face stitched back on. Oddly enough, he didn't have any scarring from this at all. He's a rock. Um, but it was, it was definitely a definitive moment of my childhood. It was one of those mental notes like, okay, cartoons are not real. And black powder explodes before it burns. And uh, probably not going to try this on my own. So if you are ever in the, in the market for doing this for your kids or your family, just remember back to my father blowing his face off in a nice, warm, muggy, buggy Indiana day. Thanks for this week, and I'll see you next.